0: Hello and welcome to episode 8 of The Wilder Podcast. Chloe, hello.
1: Good evening, everybody.
0: Or morning, lunchtime. I don't want to, you know, I do not want people to feel like they're not welcome on this podcast. They can listen whenever you'd like.
1: I mean, I think podcasts are always best consumed on a good walk, so hopefully someone's out here walking listening to this.
0: Yeah, and, you know, cars are on the way to work, on the tube. I think you can pretend, close your eyes and pretend you're in the middle of Wales, a rewilding site while listening to this, as opposed to, you know, in someone's armpit.
1: It's true, we have bought these funky new mics that might enable us to record out in the field.
0: Yep, yeah, it's road mics, wireless mics for any geeky people out there, but I'm very excited that we can actually maybe, one of these times, do our interviews or even tops and tails of the podcast having a wonder.
1: With the sounds of the birds and the bees and the, I don't know, grasses <laughs> gently good, swaying.
0: It's a good job we're not going into autumn, isn't it? Otherwise, that... <laughs> <laughs> and if you are a new listener, it's great to have you on board. Very quick recap, the Wilder podcast is... Following our journey as we look to put back to nature, nature recovery, whatever you want to call it, rewild 80 acres of our farm in Monmouthshire. I hope you're you you know you're here for is that journey, but also the amazing guests that we get on every week. And the topics range from obviously rewilding, climate change, sustainability and environmental technologies as today's about as well. So there's a whole host of topics. If you are feeling brave, feel free to go back to episode one. It really does kind of document our journey from the start of us moving into this house. So... Before we record these episodes, Chloe and I have a quick wag, and we think, what, what could we talk about at the top? And the problem is we end up with like 20, a list of 20 things that have happened that we think of vaguely interesting. And then we have to narrow it down because we appreciate that what you're here for is is the awesome guests that we have on. So uh, this week, I think it is quite an exciting update, do you think?
1: I mean, I'm still sad my apple juice update isn't in there. But anyway, if we're going to have to talk about the planning.
0: <laughs> I don't, don't worry, darling, I will cover this for you. Apples fell from tree, collected apples, squished them, put them in a jar, drank it. Very nice. Got it for the rest of the year.
1: Fair.
0: Okay. <laughs> Moving on to the really, really exciting news is that we have submitted our pre-application for some building work to be done on the land and are connected with that application for three temporary log cabins put on there for people to come and enjoy the
1: project. So it's really exciting. I spent a few evenings looking through the planning policy for Monmouthshire, which I actually feel is quite progressive, (laughs) and have put together with Tom's support, obviously, a a pre-app which covers, I guess, the project and a description about what we're hoping to do and why. And we hope our lovely planning officer, who's coming in a couple of weeks, equally shares our vision and understands what we're trying to achieve here.
0: Yeah, and when Chloe says, with Tom's support, what she means is, I did the pictures. I'm that person at school that's just given the picture of the world and just says, colour it in. And that was that was my responsibility. Oh,
1: you had a few opinions about the, <laughs> the text and the arguments as well, but yeah, okay, you, you you are a visual man. And I guess in that vein, I'm going to give you the opportunity now to use those visual skills, sort of, to give us an audio description of a visual thing.
0: Hey, this is a rock and roll podcast, guys. Like, right, fasten your seatbelts. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. Come on. Like we say, the planning has gone in, and just to give you the kind the, of the top level overview, we want that it to be a the barn that we're converting is facing centre of the bowl where the land surrounds, and we want it to be a multi purpose education space, relaxation space, you know, there's a cooking space there as well for people to come run your classes there. It might be rewilding, might be sustainability, it might be just corporate events. They want to get out of the office to do some brainstorming, and the northern side of the barn will be overlooking the land so you can be learning something great, but also hopefully have the inspirational view to appreciate over the seasons, over the years and over the decades that this project will be running. In terms of location on the land, it is about 75 metres from our house, a cluster of five modern agricultural barns and modern being relative. It's not a grade two listed farmhouse. It's 200 years old. And the most northern part of that cluster is the barn we're looking to convert. Inside, we're going to have all the mod cons, but I'll let Chloe kind of talk about that.
1: Yeah, I guess what I imagine when I think about the space is a space where people can come together and relax. There'll be some comfortable sofas, the kettle will be on, there'll be some baked goods. I guess it's a space where people can come and if you're up for a chat about any subject really, but I guess there might be some biodiversity chat, there's going to be a library of all our rewilding books and various associated subjects and some board games, and we just hope it's a kind of a space where people can come together, enjoy each other's company, as well as the beautiful views that surround.
0: For the guests that do hopefully come and stay in the cabins, there's going to be the shower and the, the toilet there. Don't worry, we won't leave you to, to fester, for lack of a better term. I
1: mean, I think our compost loops by the cabins will actually be very... Airy? <laughs> I mean, they're going to have great views. I'd want, to, I'd want to use that
0: bathroom. And the cherry on the top, I think, to this cake, is that there's also got a little mezzanine, hopefully, space. Where the Grade Project team can sit and work, and there's going to be hopefully, I keep saying the word hopefully, and I'll come back to in a second, a podcast recording studio purpose-built for this. Any other podcasts, not just audio, but visual as well, because the main effort of what we're trying to do with the Grade Project is that outreach is that use modern mediums, modern digital marketing, and, and content mediums to influence and inform people that are already interested in this space, of course. But, Mainly trying to get people that are new to the space, give them a way to come in in a non-judgmental atmosphere and just learn about this thing called biodiversity or this thing called climate change and have the realities of it given to them from people. Hopefully, they'll find it interesting.
1: I just really like the fact that I'm eight episodes into my first podcast and I seem to have got myself a recording studio.
0: You are so spoiled. No, That's, <laughs> what, that's what I've always said about you. Yeah. Now, a reality pill before we go into talking about our guest, who is absolutely fascinating really interesting, is that we appreciate this as a pre-app all that is is basically saying look local planning department would you like to come out this is our idea let's have a chat and we want to work collaboratively with the planning department to make this a reality and people that have gone through planning will know that it's not always as plain sailing as we would like it to be necessarily so we are going into this with our eyes open and Chloe and I had a chat didn't we before we came on should we talk about it on the podcast should we wait until we've got planning and because we want this journey to be clear open and transparent we said let's just talk about it because then if it goes well great you know we you will join us on that journey if it doesn't go to plan then that's a thing that people are maybe aspiring to do something similar you need to understand this not or you can't always bank on things happening so we want to be honest with you about that
1: so if you're listening to this podcast and thinking mm, i could run a course on insert relevant subject here then please reach out to us at hello at grangeproject.co.uk
0: all right, that is enough of an update from us. Despite all the exciting apple juicing going or apple murdering oh, going on, I didn't even talk about Flymageddon either. No, no
1: let's, let's not get into that.
0: Without further ado, let's move on to the uh, chat for this week. I've been sitting on this for a number of weeks now, and I'm happy we've got around to putting this out. Our guest is Ben Westcott. He's the head of enhanced weathering. If you don't know what that is, don't worry. We've got a whole interview to cover that from a company called Undo, and they're looking at their nature-based solution in order to sequester and store carbon while equally at the same time providing value to the farmers that they work with. So if you're a farmer, this might be interested to you. If you're interested in concerned about climate change, hey, look, this is one of the companies looking to try and promote and research new technologies to do their bit to mitigating the, the effects of it.
1: What I really liked about it is it starts off with a really concrete example of a physical process, which is always helpful to kind of get your head around, what do we mean by this thing? But then we start to step out, I guess, into more of the kind of abstract debates around the carbon market generally, which I think is quite an interesting journey in the discussion. Should we get into it? Let's do this.
2: Welcome, Ben. Hi, Tom. Hi, Chloe. Great to see you.
0: Thank you very much for taking the time. I've been very keen to have a chat with Undo. Since its inception, to be honest, uh, from a personal level, I wanted to learn more about it. So thank you for taking the time to enlighten us and the listeners. Before we start, would you mind introducing yourself and and bring us up to speed as to how you
2: find yourself head of Enhanced Weathering for Undo? Yeah, sure. So my name is Ben Westcott. I did 20 years in the military doing all the sort of exciting things that you would have imagined that, that we've done over the last couple of decades and then was looking for something new and was fortunate enough to join a company which was then the Future Forest Company which was a carbon dioxide removal company which even now sounds pretty new and exciting and we were doing tree planting, peatland restoration, biochar and enhanced weathering and I took on the enhanced weathering project. And the story is that we span that out into a separate company, which is now Undo, and that is our business model. That is how we sequester carbon dioxide and how we generate our revenue.
0: The Future Forest company a year ago, 18 months ago, really did catch my eye because the tagline was, I don't know if it still is now, but it was, you know, unfucking the future, which I I just liked a company that had the confidence to say something like that, and actually, you know, and have that as its mission. I quite liked both the bold statement that it was trying to try to make. Is it still that tagline, or have they moved on from that? Evolved?
2: I, do you know? I honestly couldn't tell you but what <laughs> what what they are. Still, is experts in really beautifully designed nature-based carbon removals, native tree species supporting development of biodiversity, some really smart work around Peatland. You know, they're, they're an incredible team, and, it, and that was a great organisation to spin out from.
1: And I guess I'm curious, kind of what led you into this sector from your military background?
2: Uh, I think so many of us, not just from the military actually, but across society are looking for purpose. And this felt like a purposive venture. And I've got a colleague who refers to it as his messianic guild complex, which is that you know we've all spent a lifetime polluting, having an impact on the environment, and of course only we can save it um so and I think that a lot of people who work in climate fall onto that sort of onto that sort of spectrum. but I think what's been really humbling has been the number of people who have arrived with a sense of purpose and have stepped out of some really excellent jobs with great career prospects and said no this isn't enough i need to do something more
0: and this episode is really designed to be you know looking into climate change and and really understanding some of the new technologies that are emerging and learning about them and pretty better understanding you know some other solutions that are out there so weathering uh, specifically rock weathering can we start off with what is that and then we can go into the enhanced element of that later
2: yeah sure so naturally there is a slow carbon cycle or a geological carbon cycle. And one of the aspects of that is that carbon dioxide dissolved in rainwater hits certain types of rock and reacts with that rock to form carbonates. And those carbonates then, having come out of that atmospheric carbon dioxide in that rainwater, are then locked away in the geology for hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years. And so this slow carbon cycle takes place over millennia and balances out the levels of atmospheric carbon dioxide. Now, we talk about in stroke weathering, it's a chemical reaction. And like any chemical reaction, we can speed that up by, in our case, increasing the surface area or working in areas where we find greater concentrations of carbon dioxide in solution. And so we take crushed basalt rock or mafic rock and we spread it on agricultural land and so the particle sizes are much smaller and we see very high concentrations of dissolved carbon dioxide in the roots of the plants that are in those agricultural soils and so the reaction proceeds more quickly and that's the enhanced bit of the rock weathering.
1: So on quite a high level, Ben, what does that actually mean in terms of its potential for carbon storage?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. So as a company, we think that this has the potential to scale to gigaton removal and that's based on our understanding of the availability of basalt rock globally and being able to integrate within the sectors that we do, say the aggregate and quarrying or mining industry, logistics and agricultural industries, and that's a realistic headmark, this, and is borne out by a number of recent scientific papers.
1: For people that might have no comparison points with that, is there a kind of an easy comparison in terms of the storage of a gigaton? What does that actually mean in terms of our output as the UK or other contexts? That might be a difficult question to answer, I don't know.
2: How many flights to Australia? Come on. Um, so roughly one person flying to New York is slightly over, I think, a ton of carbon dioxide equivalent if they're flying economy. So a gigaton would be a billion flights.
1: Yeah, that sounds quite helpful. <laughs> Sorry, baby, being too noisy.
2: I think what's really important about this stuff is we need a suite of technologies, and this is one that could make a meaningful contribution to removals at scale.
0: From a farmer's perspective, I assume other farmers, farming unions, forming groups, what is the value proposition to me as a farmer? If you came to talk to me, what are the things that you kinda, you'd say, look, I've got this thing, it's so a new technology, go.
2: Yeah, sure. So these are volcanic rocks, and we know that the areas immediately surrounding volcanoes tend to be extremely fertile. That's why you've seen populations grow in extremely dangerous regions of the world for generations, right? And so these rocks contain high levels of micro and macronutrients. And as a result, as the weathering takes place and carbon sequestration occurs, those nutrients are weathered out into the soils and become plant-available. The weathering also can buffer or increase the ph of the soils and so it has a liming effect and what that means is that as agricultural practices tend to drive ph slowly down in their so- in soils farmers are looking for that liming effect not only because that's where plants prosper but also because it makes other nutrients in the soils more available This is all part of our pitch to landowners, which is that this is a soil improver. It's not a fertiliser, but it'll improve the health of the soils. And we've done trials with Newcastle University and we've seen yield improvements as a result of those trials. There's some paper coming out, which will be published on that relatively shortly. It's um, It's a really exciting addition to agricultural practice.
1: Are there any downsides for the farmer? Because this all sounds great so far.
2: Yeah, so the principal concern within horse rock weathering is about the feedstock material. And there are materials out there, rocks out there, which have higher levels of particularly nickel and chromium. And so we've taken a really rigorous approach to this, we sample extensively every source material which we find, and we set an upper limit informed by actually the EU soil improver guidelines which we found to be the most stringent globally. We set an upper limit for nickel and chromium according to those guidelines and we won't use a material that exceeds it.
1: For someone that has no idea about rock, where would you source something like basalt from?
2: Yeah, so in the UK, you find a large swathe of it between southwest Scotland up to northeast Scotland and down into the north of England, just north of Newcastle. And then there's a little bit in central Wales, not too far away from where we all are. And then there's um, some down in the the southwest of England as well. So you have to follow, as you're operationalizing this, you have to follow the geological availability of the material. And that's where we've built out our operations, principally in Scotland and northeast England. Uh,
0: Right, okay, so... Again, I'm no expert in rocks and stones, but what I do know is rocks are heavy. Getting rocks out of the ground is, I guess, quite a bit of work. And then you've got to crush it and then you've got to move it to where you want to use it. Then you've got to spread it. So there's obviously quite a lot of steps in that process. And that's just sourcing it from the country that you want to spread it in. So I'm assuming you've done all of these calculations based on that. So I'm keen to hear about that process and what your kind of expected or projected benefits are. If you've got a scenario or, or an example, that'd be really useful.
2: Yeah, sure. So in the UK, we find this rock as a byproduct. So other products that come out of the quarry are larger, and the fines, which you know, is like a sand with a dust in the bottom of it, that essentially is a byproduct. And so the emissions associated with the crushing of that are captured under the quarry's life cycle analysis. At that point it enters the, our operational boundary and we start accounting for the carbon. And we find that by the time we've hauled it to site and spread it our operations are about 95% efficient. So that is, over the lifetime of the weathering of the material, our emissions equate to about 5% of the carbon dioxide that we sequester, which is actually, that's really powerful.
0: Absolutely. And sorry, just so I understand you properly here, so you're saying that at the moment, the rocks you're using in the UK is, it tends to become a, a by-product, and it's not your responsibility to account for it. it. From a quarry perspective, your accounting starts post-quarry. But it is a by-product, or, or do they... Will they specifically look for it? Because you're now obviously expanding and
2: looking for more stone. Yeah. So the state we're at now, we're using a byproduct. It's it's inevitable at some point that we will need to do additional processing. Mm -hmm. And we're working with, with a quarry at the moment actually to estimate what the additional power requirements would be and what the additional associated emissions would be. Where we've trialed additional processing, we would trialed some in the US. Actually, we saw that figure drop from about 95% efficiency to 90% efficiency. So it hasn't proved to be as carbon heavy, that additional process, as we thought it might be. Cool. That's great.
0: Now, everything, like any new research, any any new technology, idea... Carbon renewal solution, whatever it might be, it takes a lot of money to research and develop it. And then it obviously takes a lot of money to then implement it and test it as well. I'm keen to kind of understand that. How how did the company start? Who's funding this work? And also, then, as a secondary question, really is looking at once you start commercializing this, as I know you are doing now, how does that work for the farmer?
2: Like, who, where does the farmer get? Do they
0: pay you to come on or do, do you pay them
2: to use their land? How does it work? Sure. So, as a company, We're selling carbon credits, and that is our revenue model, and that is what allows us to expand. We're a for profit. That was intentional because we think that we can scale this more quickly in that paradigm than, for example, a a non-profit. And so we have some really sophisticated buyers, honestly, some of the most sophisticated in the market. So, for example, we have a um, contract with Microsoft, and their demands on us to prove that we are sequestering the carbon dioxide that we claim to be are really stringent as part of that we've agreed with them a certain number of measurements that we'll take and we will be transparent with them about the data on that and so it's that sort of purchase which is not only allowing us to expand but is also allowing us to further this technology as we do so and this is a as he's pointed out it's a it's a new technique. But it's been in the lab for quite a long time, and the rock behaves differently in field conditions to how it behaves in the lab. And so that commercial scale-up is critical to understanding how it's actually going to work once it's deployed onto agricultural soils. And that's how we're funding this. In terms of the farmer, at the moment in the UK, the farmer gets this soil improver provided to them for free. And we can do that by balancing the revenue from the sales to people like Microsoft with the costs in our business model. And we have an agreement with the farmer that any carbon sequestered as a result and only as a result of the operations that we conduct, that will belong to undo for resale. But any other carbon that the farmer is generating through regenerative agriculture or tree planting or whatever it might be, that's theirs. We make no claim to future farm practice and there is no claim over land use or anything else. And we find that this is an attractive contract and that landowners are prepared to join us on this basis. Okay. You probably mentioned this earlier and I just
0: didn't tweak. The research you've done, have you have you managed to quantify the improvement to the crop yield or whatever it might be on, on these farms? Are we, cause I, farmers are not stupid, right? That's That'll be the first question they ask, right? What's the benefit to me and, and how can you prove that it's going to be a benefit to me?
2: So we're about to publish some research on this. It's really exciting because we've done it in collaboration with Newcastle University. I can't talk about it anymore because we're, oh, we're oh. pre-publication, so let's set up another conversation for when we have. But... What we are seeing is a lot of anecdotal evidence from the farmers that we're working with, and the benefits that they're seeing are really quite varied. In in one case, which came as a surprise to us, we actually saw greater drought resistance in pasture on fields that a farmer had treated, vice the ones he'd chosen not to treat and we're gradually building this up into a body of knowledge about what this sort of impact can have as a soil improver. But the really interesting thing is that we're seeing spiralling demand. And so having been operating in Scotland for really 18 months at scale now, we are finding landowners coming to us and saying, actually, we want to work with you. We want to be a part of this because we've seen the benefits that our neighbours have had from working with you. And that's becoming a really interesting tipping point.
0: That's great to hear. Can we move on to the carbon market now, if you don't mind? I know this obviously is not you know you're not in charge of the carbon market at all and the carbon credit market, but it, I'm really keen as someone operates in that space to kind of get your reflections on it. Over the last few years that Chloe and I have been looking at it, it's been really hard to nail down what is the market, where does it live, like you know, is there a, a what defines a credit and all you know all that good stuff. And, there's, and as with any new market that's evolving there are the goodies and the baddies you know the people that are trying to do it appropriately and, and trying to base it on evidence and then you've got the people that think they can make a quick buck and and now essentially snake oil salesmen are trying to sell something just for their quick profit so i'm going to pause there Ben, and, and just really get your reflections on the evolution uh, at least during your time in in the company of that market where it is now and where you think it might go in the future
2: sure so i'm going to talk about the voluntary carbon market and there is the emissions trading scheme which is the european scheme but we're not operating in that and i'm certainly not expert in it but i'm, I'm happy to talk a bit about the voluntary carbon market so cool. in terms of what is the market built around well it's built around an assessment of the removal of one ton of co2 equivalent that is imprinted then in the methodologies which is essentially a what it is it's a statement of method for a carbon removal company and according to the various methodologies If you conduct certain activities, that will result in the removal of the equivalent of one tonne of carbon dioxide. So that's what the market is based around. And just quickly on that, is it
0: peer-reviewed or can a company just say, here's our method, it's going to remove a tonne, pay me some money? Or is there a bit more checks and balances involved in that?
2: So It's really interesting. So you you could produce a method which was compliant with an ISO standard for carbon dioxide removal methodologies writ large you could go to a number of entities and write a methodology with them. And that's what we did with Puro Earth. And so we wrote a methodology for with others for enhanced rock weathering and that's now available and open access on the internet. So it's it's transparent methodology. And I think those are the two ways that you would produce it. And, and the real thing within the market then is what do the buyers of carbon credits consider to be credible and sufficient? And they will take a look at the various methodologies, particularly at this stage in the market, give it a really good scrub and say, yes, we think this is sufficient or no, you know, we're not quite there yet. And the, the idea of the market is a really challenging one at the moment because carbon is not a commodity in the sense that oil is. For example, you have different types Mm -hmm. of carbon removal. So, for example, you might have carbon credits from planting trees. You might have carbon credits from direct air capture. And there is a very strong market sentiment that the two have different values because of the permanence, durability, and the additional impact or otherwise that those different technologies have. So it's evolving. It's probably got a huge amount more evolving to do. And it's an extremely dynamic and exciting place to be working. I bet it is. And I
0: like the fact that you say your methodology is is open source because that invites, invites review and critique. That means that you know, as a private company, you know, something that is not a charity, you've or anything like that if anything you put out there into the market isn't as tied down as you can in the science and evidence then you'll get unpicked and then your company essentially could crumble and that's a massive risk so anything you put out there it's in your interest to be as accurate as you possibly can be because that's your brand image and your and your reputation you're putting on the line so that's nice to hear that that's the way it works
1: a critique I often hear challenging some of these kind of carbon credit systems is it's just a way of companies basically not working to reduce their emissions source but just offsetting them and actually that just shifts the problem around what kind of what are undue reflections on that
2: I think it's really interesting and I personally think that and we think that that is a very fair critique you know the most important thing is that we reduce emissions now and we have to reduce emissions But any of the IPC scenarios see carbon removals as an essential component of that net zero target at 2050. And so we need to scale up now because some of these technologies won't work. They will be developed to a certain point and then they will either be shown not to be profitable or they will be shown not to do what they say on the tin. And the current purchases Of carbon credits, an awful lot of them are there to stimulate supply and to keep companies like ours driving the technologies forward in order that we have these at the scale that we need in order to hit those net zero goals. And of course, when you look at the carbon market, and there are some really good analyses of this market as it stands, and there is no way that the current supply can meaningfully impact our emissions. It's just impossible. So the idea that any company can carry on doing what it's doing and buy enough carbon credits that it can just carry on is simply not supported by the data that we see on the supply side of the market. So absolutely understand that point of view, but it's not borne out by the realities that we're experiencing.
0: And on that note, I suppose, do you think, I'm sure you do as, as you're working for, you know, for and do as, and head of the Enhanced revering back. will this technology scale fast enough and, and 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 can you keep up with the demand you think that will be generated? Or how
2: will you? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So so we can scale. To, and as I said, this is one of a whole broad portfolio of technologies which we need to get to the scale of removals within those IPCC scenarios. And yes, We can absolutely do that. And the way that we're doing it is we've gone narrow and deep in the UK will continue to do so but we're starting to work with partners overseas and these partners have access to large volumes of, of land large tonnages of rock and they're keen to work with us and so by bringing these on we can scale up because we don't have to establish teams for delivery overseas other people who are native to you and expert in those territories and those jurisdictions can do that we can enable them to generate carbon credits to take those to markets, and to scale this up and that's That's what we're focusing on at the moment.
0: So this is a Chloe question, but baby is currently grizzling and therefore I am her uh, mouthpiece for this conversation. But uh, her question is, technology is always evolving, especially carbon sequestration technology. What are the things that you're excited about for the future of enhanced weathering and also any other
2: technologies that's on the horizon that you're keeping your eye on? There's a couple of things around enhanced weathering which are worth watching over the next 6 to 12 months. So the first is around how we actually measure rates of sequestration. I think you're going to see some significant changes in that. You know, From a personal perspective, I really hope we get to an industry standard where it is widely accepted. This is how we'll conduct measurement. And then we can really go forward and accelerate expansion. And then on a more parochial level within Undo, what we've done a lot of work on recently is really understanding what the global potential is. And being able to narrow down really to a county level rather than a state level, but down to a county level where we should go looking for the combination of rock, climate, infrastructure. Because once we do that, we go from fishing to hunting and we can really start to drive down some of these opportunities to scale rapidly. So they're the two things that are on my mind at the moment.
0: Are there any other technologies that you know our listeners can go and research themselves? I just obviously you're in the space, so I'm sure you kind of hear different types of technologies
2: uh, all the time. So I'm a bit of an outlier on this, I think, but I have a really strong belief that nature-based solutions have an enormous role to play. One of the reasons I say that is because when I look at carbon dioxide removal technologies, those with the greatest co-benefits, where multiple stakeholders can benefit from. The implementation of those technologies, I think they're the most attractive. So enhanced weathering has all sorts of things around it. Soil health improvement, rural jobs, potentially support of food chains. All of this is, is really exciting. There's a huge number of nature-based solutions that, although the benefits are different, they also benefit more communities. And even things like woodland creation. We talked about the Future Forest Company at the beginning, but native broadleaf woodlands which communities can then access and re-establish part of that connection with nature or greater opportunities for reinforcing or supporting biodiversity. And as I say, because we sort of fall into the engineered category, I'm a bit of an outlier on this, but I think we should just not take our eye off some technologies which are well established, well known, and which we can roll out and need to feature as part of the portfolio of removals.
1: I'm particularly interested in nature-based solutions because it feels like it's obviously working with an ecosystem, which makes sense to me. I guess there is a degree of kind of interfering with that system, whether it's introducing more rock or whether it's planting trees. How do you kind of assess for any unintended consequences that might happen as a result of that kind of interference?
2: And that's a great question. So what we've done for Enhanced Rock Weathering is we've set a maximum ecological value to the land that we will work on. So we won't work above semi-improved pasture, because anything that has more ecological value than that, we would be interfering with a system where we wouldn't really know what we were doing, and we might disrupt it. So again, a bit like the levels of nickel and chromium in the source material we're using, we just cap it at that and we work below it. And I think, you know, it goes back to your point, Tom, about the actors in the space, you know, the really good actors in this space have their eyes open for unintended consequences, And are constantly playing through okay what if what if what if and how can we do this to our best of our abilities and there are some really really credible players doing exactly that in this space and i think that's what i find so exciting it links to your point about transparency
0: well thank you very much for your time i think it's really exciting my final question and having been down to the local pub and had a chat about this i know the answer but it's probably just worth bouncing it off you so i asked the question down at the pub was Look, we've got some fields here. Why don't we just spread some over this field and 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 can we sequester sort of some carbon? But you obviously came back with a very uh, interesting
2: response. Well, so what we were talking about was you want to establish wildflower meadows, and my I'm absolutely not expert in this, but my understanding from conversations with others that in order to do that, you want to drive down the nutrient levels in your soils, so you get less grass growing and you get more of those other species pushing their way through and if we were to come and work with you and spread craft rock fines basalt onto your land what you'd probably find is that the pH would rise nutrients availability would rise you get this massive growth of grass and that would just suppress what you're trying to achieve uh-huh. uh, it's that sort of knowledge that we're developing as we commercialize this as we work with growers across scotland and northeast england and in details elsewhere That means that we can come in and have a really honest conversation with the landowner and say, we think this will work for you. Or actually, in the scenario you've just described, I think there are other ways you could achieve that. And to me and to the rest of the team who deal on that day-to-day basis with landowners, that level of integrity is what is underpinning that spiraling engagement that we're seeing in those areas. Great.
0: Well, thank you. I think we're coming to the end of the podcast now. Is there any final thoughts or any way would like to direct the listener to if they would like to find out more?
2: I think what I'd do is for anyone who's interested in enhanced weathering, go to our website, www.un-do.com. There's a load of information on there. There's information for landowners. There's information for quarry owners. There's information and the opportunity for people even to purchase carbon offsets against their own lifestyle. And there are also some other links there, which will take you through and give you a bit more background into this as a technology and us as a company. Thanks again. Really appreciate <laughs> it. Really, really enjoyed it. Great to see you
0: both. <laughs> well, favorite quote from that definitely was the messianic or Messianic God complex. And I, and I definitely can understand why, because I have noticed quite a lot of ex military people getting into this field. And I, I do think it is maybe a bit of that, maybe a bit of ego, but equally people join the military to serve to serve their nation and i think when you leave that you lose that identity really quickly and it's a significant loss to a lot of people that leave the military so having another cause that is super important that you can dedicate your life to and bring that hard work and graft that we're used to doing in the military to a problem like this i think is quite attractive to kind of ex-military and other people in, in in similar roles
1: I can absolutely see why that resonated with you, Tom, having, I guess, been alongside you on your journey over the last few years since having left the military. I think that kind of sense of value, set and purpose is really important in that.
0: I mean, being alongside or propping up, depending on (laughs) which way you want to look at it.
1: Well, hopefully we've landed on something that meets all of our needs (laughs) with branch projects. But I think for me, what I really liked about what I was speaking about was this idea of kind of mutually beneficial solutions. So the kind of idea of being a win-win-win for everybody. And my recent example of that is one of my favorite facts at the moment is this idea that if we can bring biodiversity back or rewild approximately 30% of the UK, and that doesn't have to be pure rewilding, it's just sort of protecting for nature, whether that's peatlands or grasslands that we can sequester 12% of the UK's current greenhouse gas emissions. And I just thought, again, that's a really nice thing where you can bring back nature, fantastic. That's a great thing for everyone visually, for their wellbeing, for nature itself. And also we can sequester a load of emissions. What's not to like?
0: Not just all of those things, but bringing back biodiversity to the land is not just about being nice, although it helps, it's about also protecting pollinators in order to allow us to grow our crops as well. So it's a really fundamental requirement there. With all new technologies, or approaches until they've been around for decades. there's always going to be skeptics out there and I think it's really important to be super rigorous with your approach which again I really appreciated kind of I think the openness from which Ben shared their approaches, the challenges that they were facing and kind of the benefits of what they believed they were going to bring to farmers but also very clearly saying look that you know in order to bring these benefits to you this is the value that we're taking from you know you letting us use your land. And I suppose as long as both parties are happy with that, it sounds like a marriage made in heaven.
1: I guess the way I see it is we're in a bit of a pickle and we need lots of solutions to get us out of this pickle and nature-based solutions, technology-based solutions, reducing emissions, campaigning, biodiversity, all of this stuff is all part of the same picture of all the different things that we need to be doing to get ourselves out of this situation. And I guess as we need as much... You know, we're trying to get as much biodiversity back to our land here. It feels like we need the same diversity in solutions to address the complex problem that we're currently facing.
0: Yeah. And I'm, I'm just a little bit sad that you know we recorded the interview with Ben actually a number of weeks ago, like four weeks ago now. And I was hoping that the report that he mentioned would have come out. It hasn't yet come out where he talks about the kind of the research that's been done into the impact and value to their clients, customers, whichever way you, whichever way you want to look at it. So I will be keeping an eye out for that. And I think hopefully, if, if and when it does come out, I'll try and update the listeners on that because I think that's going to be fundamental to bringing people along on their journey and us as well. So we can see it evidenced as to the value it brings. So that's going to be key in order for Undo and other people to be brought along their journey. We've just got to see evidence of it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I guess this is a slightly different episode for us in terms of its perhaps exploring an area we haven't done before, send us your feedback around what that was like, whether you were interested, whether it fitted for you. I mean, I would certainly be interested to think more about some of these nature-based solutions that we haven't touched on yet to see more about the kind of problems and possibilities of those.
0: Yeah, definitely. And just listening to you then, I was just thinking that there's so many exciting topics that we can dig into while we're doing this podcast. It's just wonderful to hear the thing that the people listening to this enjoying what we're talking about and as we are learning at the same time. So should we wrap up for today? Let's do that. Um, As ever, there's two ways, you know, in which if you'd like to support the podcast, you can do it. First one is really quickly is you can just rate and review on whatever platform you're on. I say it every week, but if you are that person that's either a new listener and you've enjoyed it and there's value in it, please rate it. Equally, if you are the people that message me on Instagram saying, I've just listened to every episode in a row. It's awesome. You know, that's great. But just please, please rate and review. And secondly, if you want to get in touch with us, it's hello at grangeprojects.co.uk and let us know what you think.
1: Look forward from you all.
0: let so a bit more Prisma.
1: And we can't wait to hear your feedback. Until next time, I don't know how to end the podcast. <laughs>